The text I'd like to call your attention to this morning will be Acts 8, 25 to 40. Acts 8, 25 to 40. We will be looking at uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, that narrative, that story, that special little segment of biblical and world history. Uh, We're coming right off the heels of studying about a guy named Simon the Magician who uh, was a fake or false believer. And now Luke contrasts the story of Simon the Magician, that false believer, with a story of a true believer, a man who truly uh, believed and placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what a spectacular story this is, and I'm, I'm really excited about teaching it to you, going over it with you. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read our text, and then I'll pray one more time, and then we'll begin to uh, examine and apply it together. Amen? I feel like saying amen a lot today. I've got a Pentecostal streak in me this morning. I hope hope that, I don't know, I'll just shut up. Um, That could be a good thing, and that can be a tragic thing, right? I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it can be a good thing. So let's do this. We're looking at 25, 825. Got a lot to cover today too, okay? So if it takes a little bit of time, don't, you know, don't get too excited. Just email Aaron. Um, 25, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans, speaking of Peter Um, John, the apostles, Peter, John, and then uh, I think Philip to some degree here. 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had to come to Jerusalem, or he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot, 30. So Philip ran to him, I love that, ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer, he is silent or is silent. So he opens not his mouth. 33, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. 39, and they came up out of the water, 
And the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. 40, last verse. But Philip found himself at Azotos. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Father God, we want to acknowledge you in this holy moment of teaching. This is one of those divine moments where we are blessed to hear from you directly from you. I'll never forget, Lord, the time that a young junior higher said, I never hear from God. I, 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 never, I never hear his voice. He doesn't speak to me. And I said, do you read your Bible? She said, yes. And I said, he speaks to you all the time. This is how you speak to people, God. And so may we not take that lightly or for granted. May we know and understand that it is you that is teaching us, that it is you that is communicating to us and how vital that is. For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from your mouth. God, help us in this time to focus, to learn, to apply, and to be changed, and to live for you. Help us now. We pray this in the matchless, mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. All right, friends, we are going to begin with 25 and 26. Uh, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. You guys uh, do me a favor and drop that light down a little bit, the middle one. It's just kind of blinding me. Thank you. That's so much better. I could feel myself, oh, wow. <laughs> feel myself getting tan. Um, yeah. I don't like it real bright, man. You know, I'm not a bright guy. Um, <laughs> I'm dumb. Um, Some of the things I say are not of the Spirit. Um, After uh, the Simon the Magician incident, whatever you want to call it, I guess it's an incident, Philip, Peter, and John went into other Samaritan villages to preach the gospel. When Peter and John completed uh, their... Samaritan objectives, the things that they went down to Samaria to accomplish, to aid Philip in those things. We talked about them last week. Um, When they met those Samaritan objectives, they returned to Jerusalem, leaving Philip behind. And um, while Philip continued to minister to the Samaritans, he was visited by an angel of the Lord who gave him special instructions Interestingly, guidance often came to the early church through an angel of the Lord. Uh, we see that in Acts 5, 19 to 20, and over in Acts 12, 7. So this visiting from an angel breaking 
guys out of jail and giving instruction and these kinds of things. That was a, oh, a relatively common thing in the early church. It is here. The angel said to Philip, rise. Apparently he was sitting or something, I don't know. Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Luke added that the area was a desert place. Do you see it in your text there? Is it in everyone's text? He said this was a desert place. Gaza was one of the five chief cities of the Philistines. It was situated at the southernmost part of Philistia. From Gaza down to Egypt, there was nothing but desert. So this would have been like along the Mediterranean coastline, and this would have been like the southernmost city before you went into straight desert that carried all the way down into Egypt. So this was kind of the last place there. Now, from Gaza to Jerusalem, there was pretty much nothing but desert. Gaza had been destroyed by Alexander the Great, and it was left in ruins. Uh, it was desolate, deserted, and, and just really a big pile of rubble. Um, and it had remained that way for a long, long time. Now, there was a new Gaza that had been built a couple of miles away, closer to the ocean. Uh, but the Gaza that, that um, the angel is speaking about here is the old Gaza. Now, on the way to old Gaza, there were two roads from Jerusalem. One of the roads was highly traveled uh, because it was a little safer and uh, a little more accommodating. Uh, the other road was a desert road, uh, maybe similar to Route 66 as it you know, goes through uh, New Mexico or something like that. It was a, a very kind of flat, straight shot, a little bit of hills, but straight shot all the way to Gaza from Jerusalem. It was very desolate, very hot, uh, and uh, just a, a bit of a dangerous road, and, and people really did not use it. They did not travel on that route. It wasn't the good route to take. It would have been the old priest grade road if you've ever been up that thing. Goodness gracious. I think that's where they got the idea for all the roller coasters. You know, they've got a road now that goes all the way around it, and that's a pretty pleasant road. But, man, you take old priest grade, I'll tell you what, if you notice on old priest grade, if you've been on it, they've got all these water jugs all the way up there because that's because people blow their radiators going up and down that thing. I think they ought to put a pile of brake shoes down at the bottom for people because, man, when you get down to the bottom of that thing, it's like, goodness gracious. So old priest grade, I think some people take that road just for the novelty of it, and they're dumb. Um, but people did not, yeah, you're, you're dumb, Aaron. Uh, he's like, I take it, like I said. You, you didn't take this desert road. It was desolate. It was hot. It was dangerous. It wasn't something, and obviously we didn't have vehicles back then. You had chariots and horse and buggy and donkeys and stuff like that. So you didn't, you know, they didn't use this route. They didn't use this road. It was very much deserted. Now, Luke added the nuance desert place because he wants his reader, Theophilus, and anyone else who reads his uh, historical account of the church here in the book of Acts, he wants them to know that this, that Philip was commanded by this angel to go to the desert road. Take old priest grade. 
Take the road that, uh, that uh, people, you know, the road less traveled, we'll say. Take that one. That's where I want you to go. I want you to go to that road, to that stretch between Jerusalem and Gaza. Go to that one, the desert road. Is that what's hitting it? Stupid thing. Now notice, this is interesting, notice how limited the angel's instructions are or were. Did you pick up on that? The angel said, go south towards, go south towards the desert road to Gaza. That's it. That's all he said. He didn't say, and once you get there, do this or do that. Or once you get there, wait for further instructions. He didn't give him any clarity. He didn't give him a mission or anything like that. He didn't say, once you get down there, do this, this, that, or the other. He just said, go down towards that road. It's very reminiscent of Abram's call. Abram, way, way, way back, was called by God to leave his homeland and to leave his family behind and to go to the place that God would show him. Can I get a direction on that, Lord? Just start walking. I'll let you know when you get there. Whoa, really? And so this is very reminiscent of that story. And we know by faith, Abram went and he began to travel. And he traveled and he traveled and he traveled. By faith, Abram trusted God and set out on his journey. How did Philip respond to the angel's command? 27 and 28. And he rose and went. He rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to, come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Like Abram, Philip trusted God and set out towards the desert road. What happened once he reached the desert road? Luke makes it clear that he noticed an Ethiopian, an Ethiopian eunuch, sitting in his chariot. Luke then gives us five important details about this particular man. Number one, he was a eunuch. A eunuch is a man who has been emasculated. Emasculation was required in some nations for certain palace jobs if a man desired to serve, you know, the queen or the king's harem, uh, he might have to be emasculated. Some men were emasculated as an act of worship to their God. I'm certainly hoping that everyone in here, with the exception of children, know what the, knows what this means, so I don't have to go into detail to explain it. And some of your parents are going to have fun with that later, because, Mommy, what's that? Stupid Pastor Phil, gosh, what are you thinking? You can explain it to them on, on, on your terms. But serious thing here. First thing, he's a eunuch. He was a eunuch, emasculated. Second thing, he was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This guy served the queen of Ethiopia. Candace is not a name. Candace is a title. The queens of Ethiopia and other countries were referred to as Candace. 
Similar to how Rome called their leader a Caesar or Egypt called their leaders or their leader a Pharaoh. And so this guy was a court official of Candace. Candace, a title. She was the queen of the Ethiopians. Very interesting. Number three, he was in charge of the queen's treasure. The eunuch's special job or task was to guard and protect the queen's fortune. He served as her personal treasurer, which meant that untold riches passed through his hands pretty regularly. Uh, You might say that he was trustworthy, a very trustworthy man. Number four, he was returning to Ethiopia after worshiping God at Jerusalem. All of these things are in the text. This guy was a type of Jewish convert. It's not certain how he joined, became part of the Jewish faith, Um, but there was a large Jewish colony north of Ethiopia at Alexandria, up further up in the northern part of Africa. Um, We don't know how he became a Jew or how he was turned on to Judaism. Maybe he, you know, was passing... Maybe he was up doing business or something at some point in Alexandria, and that's where he heard of the Jewish faith and began to investigate it. We don't know. Now, interestingly, eunuchs were excluded from the Jewish assembly, and they were prevented from fully converting to Judaism, Deuteronomy 23.1. We have to remember, though, when this law was issued, it was... Uh, a crucial time in Israel's history, and God was fashioning for himself a people unto himself. And uh, they were to be a holy people and set apart and different from all the surrounding nations. They were not to be like everyone else around there. And uh, the surrounding nations were into a lot of different things, a lot of crazy things, a lot of obscene things and stuff like that. And so God issued a series of laws uh, to separate from the Israelites could follow these things and look at these ordinances and be different from everyone else around. And so this law was given during that time. It was a valid law. It, it stood. Now, because of the law in Deuteronomy 23, 1, a eunuch could only become half-Jewish. Uh, the title these half-Jews, these types, were given was God-fearer. God-fearers. Not called Jews, called God-fearers. They were permitted uh, to enter synagogues. Uh, They were permitted to read the scriptures. But they were banned from entering the temple and the temple grounds. Even though the eunuch was banned from entering the temple, he still traveled the great distance from Ethiopia to Jerusalem several times a year, probably four times a year, to worship God during special feasts and festivals and all those things that the Jews celebrated. This guy was a Jewish convert, at least half a convert, and he was a worshiper of God, and he would go up to Jerusalem and worship to the best that he could. He wasn't permitted to do all the things, but he did what he could. Number five, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. This means that the eunuch owned his own personal scroll of the Old Testament. Now, we have to remember that these events and these things took place you know, well before the invention of the printing press, so there were very limited copies of the scriptures out there, um, which means being that this man owned a copy of the scriptures, he was a very wealthy man. I mean, the, the, you know, this copy of the scriptures, a scroll of the scriptures in those days would be a fortune. 
You only found them in the temple. You only found them in synagogues and some private residents, you know, had them, but they were, it was very rare to see anyone with them. Someone would literally have to get in there and, and copy it all down. You'd have to have a scribe do all of this work to copy it from one to the other and all this. And so it was a very expensive process to have that done. This guy has his own copy. He rolls it out and he reads it. We live, we're by a hospital. That, that happened. So this man had his own copy, and he's reading it. Cost him a fortune. Uh, Luke wrote that he was reading Isaiah. Isaiah may have had special meaning to him, since the book speaks encouragingly to eunuchs. Uh, Isaiah 56, 3 to 5. There's a little chunk of what Mike read earlier. Uh, This particular text seemed to be a very much favorite one of eunuchs. You know, they seem to be included in the plan of God and all that. And so it was sort of a counter to Deuteronomy 23.1 where it said you can't join the assembly. And then they're reading this and they're like, wow, I suppose the two passages would have brought conflict and confusion, but we're going to get to all that. But that's what he was reading. Now let's get back to Philip. Those are just five things about this eunuch that are in the text. Now, Philip was walking along the desert road, and he sees this man sitting in his chariot reading a scroll, right? That's what we read. Look at 29 to 30. It says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. Go join this chariot. 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? Notice how... The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, entered the scene here. Not that he wasn't present before, but now we have Luke acknowledging the Spirit's presence here. Okay? Philip was sent by an angel. But when he gets to the desert road and sees the eunuch, the Holy Spirit is now interacting and speaking. There's a difference here. Very interesting. Back in Samaria, it was an angel of the Lord who gave instructions, but here it is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. It is the Holy Spirit that gives the people of God their evangelistic promptings. It is the Holy Spirit that shows us who to approach. It is the Holy Spirit, it is he, him, he's the one that tells us who to approach with the gospel, and when to approach them. How many times have you received that little nudge when you're in the presence of people? Maybe they're in your workplace. Maybe they're at the grocery store. Why does God always do that to me when I'm in the grocery store? I'm just trying to get in and out of there for crying out loud. And then all of a sudden, talk to that individual. I mean, it happens, right? If you all experience this, you'll be somewhere, you'll be doing something or whatever. Maybe it's in your own house with your own family. The Holy Spirit says, go tell your son to clean his room. Then you go in and say, God commanded me to tell you to go clean your room. I mean, but how many, on a serious note, how often does this happen? It could very well be that when you get that prompting, that nudge in some scenario, that that's the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to do something in particular with this individual. Sometimes it's with strangers. Sometimes it's not. It's with a workmate. It's somebody on a child's sports team. It's, you know, whatever it is. 
It is the Holy Spirit that gives us these evangelistic promptings, that gives us the power to see them through, that gives us the words to say, to speak, the courage to do it. It's the Holy Spirit. It, I, I, these things happen to me all the time, and I, and I have to be honest with you, a lot of times I just start rationalizing, I just start saying, eh, you know, it's not, it couldn't be the Spirit that's saying this right now, because it's an awkward moment, it's an uncomfortable moment for me, I don't want to talk to a stranger, that's weird, we can't do that in this day and age, you know, and how often do we actually obey when we sense that prompting? Could very well be the Spirit of God saying, could you imagine, <laughs> Philip got the prompting? Nah, you couldn't be, Lord. You wouldn't send me over there to some big black guy in a chariot. You wouldn't send me over to some guy that I don't, I, I don't know this guy. Are you kidding me? Why would I go over and talk to this guy, this big guy over here in this chariot? Oh, I'm so glad that he didn't rationalize. I'm glad that he was obedient. It is the Holy Spirit that prompts us, points them out, and prompts us, and sends us, and gives us the words, and the, and the courage, and, and these things. The text says that Philip ran to him. He ran to him, and as he drew closer, he heard him reading Isaiah out loud. Running symbolizes the fact that Philip responded very enthusiastically to what the Spirit said to do. He didn't go, ah, dang it, this is awkward. I don't know this guy, he doesn't know me. Look at all those people with him. He could just like take a javelin and, no, he just runs to the guy. He just bolts. Yes, Lord. How enthusiastic is he here? He ran to the eunuch. How enthusiastic are we about sharing the gospel with those whom the Holy Spirit leads us to and when we do approach people when we do share the gospel with those around us in our workplaces wherever it might be when we're obedient to the holy spirit's leading and prompting how enthusiastic is our presentation of the gospel well you know he died on a cross ben stein mode here you know bueller can you imagine what the heck is that all about where's your joy you were set free from sin and hell. Shouldn't there be some enthusiasm in that? Shouldn't we be a little pumped up about what God has done? You know, I always say there's so many Christians that act like they've been baptized in prune juice. It's like, I can't wrap my mind around that. Boy, the joy of the Lord ought to be on every one of his children in such a way that they're enthusiastic. Well, this guy was enthusiastic. He was pumped up and probably a little bit frightening to see some Jew running down the road, you know, with a yarmulke and all the, you know, hey, you know, I mean, what would you think if this happened? Wouldn't that be just bizarre? If he was a modern-day Orthodox Jew, he had these things, and they'd been flapping behind him like Pippi Longstocking, right? Can you imagine this guy come running up to you? You'd be like sitting there reading your scroll. What in the heck is this guy doing? Do you know what you're reading? Oh, this guy was enthusiastic. He obeyed. He was pumped up. He was excited. 
Now, reading out loud was an ancient custom. It was normal. What we see the eunuch doing here was normal. It was normal for people to read the scriptures out loud. But before reading the scriptures out loud, usually some educated person to some degree, someone who was trained to handle the scriptures before the scriptures were read out loud, this person who was trained in the scriptures would at least first give some description of the text, some context, something like that, so that the text would make sense, right? So they would have it read out loud, but somebody would come up and say, this is the passage that we're going to read today, and this is basically the context. God was doing this, and blah, blah, blah. There'd be some sort of explanation so that the text made sense. This is why it's so vital to teach in context. You just take the Word of God and pluck it out of there and start throwing meaning. So often we don't, we're not teaching what it means. It's happening every day in churches right now at this very moment. Somebody would come and say, okay, we're going to read from Isaiah 56, we're going to read from Isaiah 53, whatever, and boom, 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 here's the context, uh, here's a generalized meeting, bam, then they would read it. The eunuch, however, was reading Isaiah out loud by himself without any aid. Philip saw this as an opportunity to provide commentary and most importantly, to preach the gospel. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading, and then hollered, do you understand what you're reading? Not with that weird southern accent. He said it in his language. But he said, do you understand what you're reading? Look at how the eunuch replied. 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? It's really cool text. I know it has meaning It's the word of God, but how can I understand what it means without somebody explaining to me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. He looked down and he saw Philip. At first he probably thought he was a maniac because he was running and screaming. And then he realized, maybe this guy can help me. He could probably tell that he was Jewish. All right? They had particular clothes and things that they wore. And Philip was a Jew. He was a Hellenistic Jew. He looks at him and he says, hey, this guy's like one of my brothers. Come on up. But the eunuch was perplexed. He was at a standstill of understanding. He couldn't figure out the meaning of the text on his own. The eunuch exclaimed, how can I understand it unless someone guides me? Philip understood the passage perfectly and was eager to interpret it for him. Seeing his excitement and willingness to help, the eunuch just very simply said, just climb aboard and take a seat. Look at 32 to 34. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Luke says, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And then the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about somebody else? The passage the eunuch was reading was taken from Isaiah 53, 7 to 8. His confusion over it is totally understandable 
since contemporary Jewish thought was divided on the interpretation of this particular passage. Some held that the slaughtered sheep represented the nation of Israel. Others that Isaiah spoke of himself. And then a very, very, very small contingency thought that he was referring to the Messiah. Very small. But there was no doubt in Philip's mind, however, of who Isaiah wrote. Like his Lord, Paul, Apollos, and Stephen, Philip was knowledgeable enough in the scriptures to meet the eunuch where he was. And every believer, every follower of Jesus Christ should strive to be proficient in the scriptures so that we too can meet people at the point of their perplexity and lead them to the Savior. Amen? But knowing the Word of God and teaching it expositionally and grounding the saints in it isn't important today. What's important is meeting all their felt needs and covering all the topics and slinging verses at them so that we can just help them. We've got to give them this psychiatric help in these things. That, that's what's important. That's what's vital so they can be moral people in our communities and function as normal people. That's the prevailing theme in all teaching today. Not that they'd be proficient in the Scripture that they would know it well enough to be able to meet people right where they're at in their perplexity, and we live in a perplexed world. The Apostle Peter said, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that is in us. 1 Peter 3.15 If we don't know the word of God, how can we possibly be ready to give a defense for it and for the hope that we have? Expositional Bible teaching, Bible teaching is insanely paramount and important to our lives. It really is. It's a conviction that I have. It's a conviction that I believe you have. I pray that it becomes a growing conviction in churches where other Christians begin to hold their leaders accountable and responsible and say, no more of this flashy, topical junk. You need to feed us or we'll find somebody that will. We've got to know the word of God. Even for our own lives. (laughs) Just for our own living and experience with God. Let alone we have a dying world around us. Look at 35 to 36. Then Philip opened his mouth. (laughs) I love that. He just began to proclaim. He opened his mouth. He opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture. This scripture, Isaiah With this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water! Exclamation point! What prevents me from being baptized? Now, Luke summarized Philip's explanation of the gospel for the sake of his reader, Theophilus. But there is 
no doubt that Philip took his time to explain how Jesus was the one Isaiah wrote about. The text says that Philip drew the good news, the gospel, out of Isaiah's passage and presented it to the eunuch. We should be able to proclaim the gospel from any and every point in the Old Testament. Talk about being proficient in the word of God. All of the word of God testifies to Jesus. We should be able to point people to the saving, redeeming work of the Messiah from the Old Testament. Oh, the Old Testament's a whole different thing. It's, a, you know, it's, it's one era, and then there's this new era, and this is the Jesus part that's so much better, and this is just hard and difficult and, and war. and No, uh, no, 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 no. Without this, there's no New Testament. W- without the prophecies and the promises, the New Testament makes no sense. The Old Testament is the context for the New Testament. Philip does what every believer ought to be able to do, especially the men in pulpits, proclaim Jesus from the Old Testament. And he takes a passage of Isaiah and bam, he's right in the gospel. Because Isaiah was bam, right in the gospel. That was the point. Now he may have done it like this. Okay, we have a a summary. We have a generalized phrase term here. He just opened his mouth and he shared the good news through this passage. He doesn't say how he did it. Maybe he did it like this. Jesus of Nazareth, that's what they called him then. Jesus of Nazareth was the sheep that was slaughtered to make a full and final propitiation for the sins of many. He's, He's the sheep. Jesus is the sheep. Mr. Eunuch. Jesus of Nazareth was the Lamb, the Lamb of God, is the Lamb still, who remained quiet before the Sanhedrin like a silent lamb before its shearer. He opened not his mouth to defend himself. Why? For he knew that he had to be found guilty, condemned, and crucified in order to bring the Father's plan nearer to completion. Amen? He's the Lamb, eunuch. He's the Lamb. Jesus, you've heard of him. I know you've heard of him. He was popular. That's him. He's the lamb. Jesus of Nazareth was humiliated and justice was denied him. He was beaten mercilessly, spit on, crowned with thorns, cursed, stripped, exposed, and nailed to a cross like a common criminal. He was granted no clemency from heaven or earth. He was denied justice and brought to death by the hands of wicked men. That's him. That was him. Jesus. You see the scroll? Jesus. Don't touch my scroll, man. I paid a lot of money for this. I get it. Jesus of Nazareth had his life taken away from the earth, but the Father gave it back to him, resurrecting him by his mighty power, and now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty, fulfilling his offices as prophet, priest, and king of kings. Mr. Ethiopian eunuch, he lives. And he rules and reigns. He is the king of kings. He is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. That's who he is. I really wish I could have been a fly on like the arm rail or something of that just to hear how Philip presented the gospel. But it probably was something like this. Probably a lot better. We got the same name, but that doesn't mean we're both still the same. Philip, Philip. 
at some point, the eunuch must have asked how to be saved. Because in verse 36, he asked to be baptized. Baptism was part of the apostles' gospel invitation. Not as a component of salvation, but as a means to express one's faith, new faith, publicly. When Peter preached, he called for his listeners to repent, believe in Jesus of Nazareth, and what? Be baptized. Philip obviously included baptism in his gospel presentation. Acts 8.12 affirms this because guess what? A whole bunch of Samaritans got baptized when they heard the gospel. Now after explaining the gospel from the book of Isaiah, Philip explained how to receive Jesus Christ. And as they were rolling down the desert road, they noticed water, maybe a creek, maybe a small pond, maybe a lake, desert region, probably not a lot of water, but there was some water there. The eunuch saw the water and said, see, here is water, exclamation point, look, water, look, dude, water, see it, look, 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 water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, this is an incredible question. Baptism was required for Jewish converts. If a person wanted to convert to the Jewish faith, they were taken through a religious process which ended, culminated in baptism. When they were submerged under the water, their Gentileness was washed away. And when they came up, they were seen as a Jew. But eunuchs were denied the ordinance of baptism because they were not permitted to fully convert to Judaism. The eunuch knew this, and when he saw the water, he pondered to himself, I wonder if being a eunuch will prevent me from being baptized and fully converted to the faith Philip has explained to me. I wonder if being a eunuch will prevent me from being fully accepted by Jesus of Nazareth. The eunuch understood the law, and by golly, so did Philip. He knew, the eunuch knew that he was restricted. And that's why he said, what is to prevent me? In his heart, he was saying, I know what prevents me. I'm a eunuch. I made a choice years ago to do something to my body that, that is unholy before God, and wrong he created me to be a certain way and I disobeyed frankly I didn't know any better I just did what my custom said but I don't think this is going to go much further Philip what is to prevent me in his mind he knows in his mind he knows he did however have a measure of hope. He believed that someday <laughs> the restriction would be lifted. He trusted this passage that we read tonight, he, this afternoon, this morning, whatever it is. He trusted this passage, Isaiah 56, 3, 5. He trusted this. He had some hope when he read this. He had a little bit of hope. It says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, 
Behold, I am a dry tree, I'm a dead tree. For, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. When he read this great promising passage, he must have thought to himself, the law says, Deuteronomy, it says I'm restricted. But the prophet says God will lift the restriction at some point in the future. And and quite frankly, I can't wait for that day. And, And I actually hope to live to see it. No more exclusion from the assembly of the Lord. Now, what the eunuch was about to discover, what he was about to find out, is that Isaiah's prophecy had come true in Jesus. Jesus brought the restriction in Deuteronomy 23.1 to an end, and he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 56.3-5. Isaiah's prophecy is about the messianic kingdom. Isaiah said that when the Messiah comes to initiate his kingdom, people of every color and background, foreigners, eunuchs, or whatever will be fully received and accepted through faith in him. Jesus came as the Messiah and he initiated his kingdom when he came. It began. The kingdom began with Jesus' arrival and the full consummation of his kingdom will occur when he returns. So Deuteronomy 23.1 and Isaiah 56.3-5 have both been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The day the eunuch longed to see had come. Full access and acceptance had been made available through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, take notice of how verse 37 is missing. Some translations, like the King James and there's others, include 37. Verse 37 shows Philip explaining to the eunuch that in order to be baptized, he must first be saved. Translators added 37 as a precautionary measure to safeguard against heresy, to safeguard against error. Verse 37 is not included in the original manuscript, and that is why many translations exclude it. And in my opinion, 37 is unnecessary because the context does the job very well. The storyline says how one must be saved, just the context alone. Now, we shouldn't fault translators because they were trying to guard against the heresy of baptism salvation. That's why they added 37. That's a good thing. Back. The chariot is rolling and the eunuch has heard the gospel and he's ready to express his new faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. He points to the water and he asks the million dollar question He's got all that history. He knows Deuteronomy. He knows, and he says, what is to prevent me from being baptized? This is like him probing Philip to see, is it a possibility that I could be fully accepted? I certainly desire to be. What faith. Philip must have declared, 
Nothing prevents you. Nothing stops you from doing this. Nothing. For the law has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And what does it say happened? 38. Philip said, I, I can't help you, man. You're a eunuch. I wish. You can be half Christian. Partial. Get the right hat and you're good. No, the eunuch commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Immediately the eunuch called for the chariot to stop. And the two of them went right down into the water and Philip baptized him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19. Baptism for this man, for this Ethiopian eunuch, meant acceptance. And baptism affirmed what he was already starting to experience on the inside, which is the acceptance of Jesus Christ. And that is ultimately what he had been longing for. And Philip helped him find what he was longing for, Jesus Christ. Also, a person of his importance, a treasurer for a queen, would have traveled with a large, large entourage. There would have been many servants, guards, animal keepers, and so on in this group. And he was baptized in front of them all. What a testimony. Hallelujah. I'm fully accepted. Let's do this. I want everyone to know that I've been accepted by Jesus Christ. Look over here. Stop messing with the donkey. Come over here, Freddie. Sally, get over here. Check this out. Line up. Circle around this little pond. I'm going to make it known to all of you that I'm now in Christ. Amen? Old Pentecostal thing coming out right there. I love it between what we read with Simon and this. It's like, there's, it just, there's a chasm between them, a chasm. It's like, wow, really, Simon? Wow, Ethiopian eunuch, hallelujah, whoa, whoa, whoa. What a difference, huh? Look at 39, and this is where it just gets Holy Spirit strange. When they came up out of the water, what a moment, right? Going under, oh, I've been waiting for this my whole life, right? When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. When the eunuch surfaced, Philip was gone. Verse 39 is linked to a number of passages that describe how other servants of the Lord were whisked away by the Spirit. 1 Kings 18, 12, 2 Kings 2, 16, Ezekiel 3, 12, Ezekiel 14, or 3, 14, Ezekiel 8, 3. Great, fascinating stories about how Elijah and these guys were just whoo, taken away by the Spirit. Philip had disappeared 
just as mysteriously as he had appeared. The eunuch and his entourage were making their way down the old deserted road, the old desert road, and then he saw Philip running towards his chariot. You know what you're reading? Nobody else around. How mysterious. Where'd this guy come from? What's his problem? Whoa, he looks like he's going to be helpful. I'll invite him up. I mean, he just, it's like he just showed up and all of a sudden he's there and he's running towards the chariot. How mysterious, right? And then while he's, the eunuch's being baptized, he can feel Philip's hand on the back of his head pushing him under the water. But when he comes up, the hand and Philip are gone. How mysterious. The eunuch looked to the left. He looked to the right. He looked all around. And the text says that Philip was gone. How did the eunuch respond? It says he panicked. He freaked out. No, it says he went on his way rejoicing. The eunuch was filled with joy just as the Samaritans had been filled with joy. Philip did gospel ministry there and preached the gospel and they were saved and healed and all these things happened and they were, the whole city was exploding with joy. This man's heart was exploding with joy so much that he was verbalizing it. He went on his way rejoicing, praise the Lord, oh wow, what a day this is. He rode along in his chariot, headed back towards Ethiopia, rejoicing. Joy is the mark of a true believer. We saw none of this with Simon the magician. What a contrast. Look at our last verse, verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotos. And as he passed through and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I would imagine that the eunuch wasn't the only one surprised by Philip's mysterious exit. I'm thinking Philip probably was. What town am I in? Uh, I'm still wet. I was about to sing praise songs with this guy. And I just got sucked right out of here. And now I'm in, what, what town is this? You know he didn't show up and look around and go, oh, this is Azotus. Probably had to figure it out, right? Probably went to the edge of town looking for a sign that said Azotos, population 800. I'm in Azotos, okay. Not sure how I got here. Just call me Elijah. What a bizarre thing. He had to be perplexed. This had to be an interesting thing for him. I'm sure he was blown away. According to the scriptures, this had never happened to Philip before. Well, you know, I got zipped away one time three years ago and it was really cool then. I'm used to this. I'm an invisible air traveler now, and so, oh, there's nothing in Scripture that says that he'd ever experienced this before, so he had to be blown away by it. Now, when he realized he was somewhere else, he had to have wondered, where am I? Where'd the eunuch go? My clothes are wet. Where am I? What town is this? At some point, he figured it out. Ozotos used to be called Ashdod. Ashdod. It was also a, one of those chief Philistine cities. It was about 20 miles north of Gaza. Now, Philip 
preached the gospel in Ozotos and then throughout other cities along the Mediterranean coast. He preached in, we call it Joppa, but it's actually Yope, and we call it Lydda or Lydda, but it's actually Luda. These are towns, Philistine towns in that area. He went into those towns and he preached the gospel and then he settled in Caesarea. In Acts 9, the apostle Peter went to these cities, Yope and Luda. He went to those cities to minister to who? To believers. How did they become believers? Philip's gospel preaching. Hello, isn't that cool? Lord was using him in these other towns that Peter, in chapter 9, we see him go into these towns and begin to gird up and build up these believers and help these believers and minister to them. He was there following in the footsteps of Philip. People were converted by Philip's preaching. According to Acts 21.9, Philip made his home in Caesarea, moved his family there. Caesarea was built by Herod the Great, and I believe it was built as a tribute to the Roman Caesar. Caesarea was a predominantly Greek uh, community, which made it a great missions field for a Hellenistic Jew like Philip. I mean, he was very much Greek, and so he could go right into this territory, this community, and proclaim the gospel and speak their language and minister to these folks. What an incredible ministry he must have had there. Now, Luke does not give us the subsequent history of the Ethiopian eunuch. However, according to the church father, Irenaeus, like 115 AD to 202 AD, somewhere around there, the Ethiopian eunuch, according to his historical account, became a missionary to the Ethiopians. Makes sense. The guy's rejoicing. He, he walks away from this thing. He's been baptized. I guarantee you the guy went back to where he was from and proclaimed the gospel and shared the good news and took Isaiah and did that same thing. Look, this is he's the sheep. He's the lamb. He's the one that was denied justice. And he went with what he had. Phenomenal, phenomenal text. In closing, I need a drink first. I'd like to point out, and I tried to figure out a way to thread it into all this, but then it would have became something else, and it wouldn't have been the narrative form that I think it needed to be, but I'm going to do it now. But in closing, I'd like to point out the overarching and most important theme of this passage, which I think is going to pay big dividends for us. That overarching theme, that most important theme in this particular story is the sovereignty of God in salvation. Some of you have probably picked up on these things as we're looking at it. Here's a reality. God has chosen to save people from every tongue and tribe. Revelation 7, 9. The Bible teaches that God not only knows who these people are, who he will save, but that he chose to set his salvation and affection on them according to the counsel of his goodwill, his will before the foundation of the world. John 15, 16, Acts 13, 48, Ephesians 1, 4 to 6, uh, chapter 1, 4 to 6, Colossians 3, 12, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, 2 Tim 2, 10, Titus 1, 1, 1 Peter 1, 1, 2, 9, and 5, 13, Revelation 17, 14, God chose, God chose, God chose. You can't deny it. It's in scripture. Now, 
Here's what's so amazing and beneficial about this doctrinal truth. Because he chose to set his affection on people, sinners, to save them, to show them a unique type of his love. Because he chose to do that, there exists nothing in all creation that can delay, divert, frustrate, or prevent God from saving those whom he has chosen to save. Our passage illustrates God's sovereignty over salvation and the precision by which he saves in an extraordinary way. Let me draw it out for you. Listen to this. We live in a time of uncertainty. We need to be certain of God. God had chosen in eternity past to save the Ethiopian eunuch. That's a reality. God, number two, God initiated his plan of salvation for the Ethiopian eunuch by beginning a work of grace in his life. This is evidenced by the fact that the eunuch not only looked into Judaism, but that he became a subscriber and worshiper to the best of his ability. That is the religion that was promoting the one true God. He traveled to Jerusalem to partake in the feasts, celebrations, and to worship the God he wanted to know. That's an act of grace. God led him to the religion that said there's one true God. He's got a Messiah that's coming. That's an act of grace. God was carrying him by his grace already, drawing him to himself. Three, God led the Ethiopian eunuch down the desert road instead of the other road. Why didn't he take the road that everyone else takes? Why did he put his life in jeopardy with the heat and the snakes and the bandits? Nearly no one used the desert road because it was dangerous, desolate, God sent for God sent an angel to Philip, the evangelist, who was in Samaria to tell him to go to the desert road that lies between Jerusalem and Gaza. This guy's on the road. This guy's over here. God sends an angel. Go here. Hmm. Precision. Number five, Philip arrived at the desert road at the exact time the Ethiopian eunuch was riding along in his chariot. Happenstance. Happenstance. Just the stars were aligned and, you know, somehow. Really? Happenstance? How about a divine plan, which was set forth and orchestrated and developed and the architect put it all together in eternity past, and this is the way that it was to happen. He arrived at the desert road at the exact time the Ethiopian eunuch was riding along in his chariot. In human terms, what a long shot. Number six, the Holy Spirit commanded Philip to go speak to the Ethiopian eunuch. Not only was he told to go there by an angel, when he got there, the Holy Spirit was present and said, See that guy over there? Go over and talk to him. 
happenstance, more happenstance. Seven, when Philip approached his chariot, he heard the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. <laughs> Out loud, which is about the coming Messiah. What a text to be reading at this time. Really? Yeah. Eight, Philip, a stranger, was invited to climb aboard and explain the meaning of the text. Nine, Philip taught the Ethiopian eunuch that Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus Christ, who is God-sent Messiah. Philip gave him the good news, the gospel. It, it, it happened. It happened. It's what you've been seeking your whole life. It's happened in Jesus. This guy had probably read that text how many times? Uh, I don't get it. And all these Jews over here are saying it's this, that, and the other. And all of a sudden, this guy says it. And not only does Philip say it, but he comprehends it. Remember who was present there? The Holy Spirit. Ten, the Ethiopian eunuch repented of his sin, put his faith in Jesus Christ, and was baptized. And I added eleven. Philip gets whisked away. And the Ethiopian eunuch continues on his journey, rejoicing. All of these things were pre-planned, prepared, and then carried out by the sovereign God. God used Judaism, <laughs> an angel, an obedient servant, Philip, the scriptures, and the oversight, instruction, and illuminating power of his spirit to bring to fruition his sovereign plan of salvation for the Ethiopian eunuch. What we've read is nothing short of amazing. And it can only mean one thing. It was all God. God orchestrated things in such a way, put this person here, put this person here, Unbelievable. Incredible. Now I'd like to submit to you that if you are in Christ today, he did the same thing for you. Your story and, your story and process may be different from the Ethiopians, but make no mistake, it was God Almighty who chose you who set his affection upon you, who brought you through the experiences of your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, who began to touch you with his grace, who illuminated your darkened heart and quickened your dead spirit through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, and who preserves you at this very moment, and who will one day bring you into his marvelous presence forevermore. In light of God's sovereign power, grace and goodness all I can say is rejoice rejoice O oh church rejoice rejoice in the salvation of our God for he has done a mighty work for you for he has done a mighty work 
for me, for he has done a mighty work for many. May we continue to trust him and rejoice in knowing that he has promised to bring to completion the good work that he began in our lives. Amen. We just had an election, and, and for some of us, it went the way that we wanted it to, and for some of us, it didn't, and blah, 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 blah. But our hope isn't in these elected people. Our hope isn't in governments. Our hope isn't in any of those other means. And some of us sit here and, and we wonder about the uncertainty and where's our nation going to go now and what's going to happen and all of these things. And heaven forbid I say this to you if that's you. If we have a God who's sovereign over salvation, why can't we trust him in these other things? He's done the greatest work that can be done. The greatest miracle for us. And yet we fret and we stress and we moan and we act like Nostradamus. Oh, the end of the world's coming. Are you kidding me? Where are we getting our truth? Is it from Fox News? Is it from MSNBC? I, I have not ever been so frustrated during an election than this last one. The absolute hopelessness being projected by God's people. What a shame. I don't think people understand what God has done for them. And if they began to get that reality, they would live differently. They would let things take place. Yes, they would fight the good fight, but they'd leave that in God's hands. They would trust their sovereign God. We've just been given an example of God's sovereignty and the precision by which he does salvation. May we trust him with all of the other smaller 